Stories, um, and today we have two remarkable readers, uh, Jerome Rothenberg and Roberto Lopez, and to introduce them is our fabulous graduate student, JP. Good evening, or good afternoon. A few weeks ago, while crossing the border from Tijuana into San Diego, the migra, the officer there, asked me what I did for a living. I elected to tell him I was a writer, and at that, he pulled up his pants up above his belt and above his large belly and said, Oh, so you're a wordsmith, huh? (laughs) He promptly sent me to secondary inspection, (laughs) where I spent more than an hour. Something about my answer provokes suspicion. Well, today I have the privilege and the difficult job, I'd say, of introducing two incredibly prolific border crossers and, as my now favorite Homeland Security officer put it, wordsmiths. (laughs) Despite a rhetoric of regional unity here on the San Diego-Tijuana border, I'd argue that actual cross-border artistic relationships are quite rare. The work of both Heriberto Yepes and Jerome Rothenberg has constantly enacted and embodied the result of a productive artistic exchange and dialogue. Heriberto Yepes teaches literature, philosophy, critical theory, aesthetics, and art history at the Universidad Autónoma de Baja California. His writing is polemical, far-reaching, and aggressively intellectual. In his writing, the world of cultural debate and intellectual discussion is a battlefield, with winners and losers, successes and failures, attacks and counterattacks. No one could accuse Yepes of shying away from controversy, and he engages in intellectual battle every week in a national column in Mexico in the Millennial newspaper. Just one example, in a recent column uh, from last week, he launches a polemical critique of U.S.-American art, quote, and this is my translation, I'm not saying that North American art is ending. I'm saying it hasn't started yet. (laughs) Till now, it has provided no evidence of being a great art, i.e., it has not given voice to unknown nightmares. To avoid descending into a dream full of monsters, North American artists have clung to their mediums or to conceptual art, to minimalism or to the university. Their voluntary insomnia will not last, cannot last. At some point, a war will arise to wake them. These kinds of sweeping critiques are a staple of his writing. Yepes is unarguably prolific, actively working against boundaries in a long list of genres and intergenres, the essay, the novel, video, new media, critical poetry, and more. His list of books in Spanish includes more than 11 books of criticism and essays, four novels, a book of short stories, two of poetry, and one of counter-poetry. In English, he has published three, Babel Bab, Non-Poetry on the End of Translation, Here's Tijuana, and Threesome Straps and Mothers and Wars. Heriberto Yepes has also translated six books from English into Spanish. These translations include an anthology of Jerome Rothenberg's poetry, Un Curel Nirvana, and another of his prose, Ojo del Testimonio, Escritos Selectos. This prose anthology, according to Yepes, uh, this prose anthology is the most complete selection of Rothenberg's prose work in any language, including English. Yepes has also written an unpublished work on Rothenberg, which recently won the Mexican National Malcolm Lowry Essay Prize for research on non-Mexican artists or writers whose work references Mexico. Non-Mexican artists or writers whose work references Mexico. This line of research began with Yepes' work on Charles Olson, 
um, and his time in Mexico, which he published in another book, El Imperio de, Neo, de la Neomemoria, The Empire of Neo-Memory. Jerome Rothenberg is an internationally known poet, translator, anthologist, and performance artist with over 80 books of poetry and 10 assemblages of traditional and contemporary poetry, such as Technicians of the Sacred and Poems for the Millennium. In a recent event uh, in 2010, uh, Jerome Rothenberg said that he has never done a book completely on his own. He explained how he's always worked with others, with all kinds of collaborators, from other poets to musicians to copy editors, bookbinders, and translators. Much of his work has been a fierce defense of the oral and what he has called the ethnopoetic, bringing to life deeply embedded oral traditions as a mechanism for knowledge and transformation. Rothenberg, like Yepes, is also incredibly prol prolific. At the time when he first began talking about ethnopoetics, he'd written approximately 30 books, and by now that figure is more like 100. His book, Poetics and Polemics, 1985 to 2005, appeared in 2008, and a 19th century prequel to Poems for the Millennium was published in 2009. Triptych, his 13th book of poems from New Directions, appeared in 2007, and books of poetry published since 2009 include Gematria Com Complete, Concealments and Caprichos, and Retrievals, Uncollected, and New Poems, 1955 to 2010. He has until recently been a professor of visual arts and literature at the University of California, San Diego. Charles Bernstein has called Rothenberg, quote, the ultimate hyphenated poet, critic, anthropologist, editor, anthologist, performer, teacher, translator, to each of which he brings an unbridled exuberance and an innovator's insistence on transforming a given state of affairs. Without a doubt, we find a powerful example of literary interdependence and community in all of his work as well as the mon one of the most revered examples of a life lived in poetry and continuing to be lived in poetry. Please join me in welcoming these two wordsmiths, Heriberto Yepes and Jerome Rothenberg, to the new writing series. I'm not going to uh, say uh, anything about uh, the poems or what I'm going to read because we have time issues. <laughs> and I just want to say um, I'm very happy to be here, uh, very grateful for this community for inviting me. Uh, I'm going to start uh, with a piece uh, on the border. Nada, nothing. Every time you cross the Tijuana-San Diego border, the world's busiest port of entry, a rite of passage takes place. When milestones or boundary signs, a plow, an animal hike out in tongues, a ditch, are ceremonially placed by a defined group on a delimited piece of earth, the group takes possession of it in such a way that a stranger who sets foot on it commits a sacrilege analogous to a profane person's entrance into a sacred forest or temple. The provision against entering a given territory is therefore intrinsically magical religious. For a great many peoples, a stranger is sacred, endowed with magical religious powers and supernaturally benevolent or malevolent. These rites, they maintain, are intended to make him neutral or benevolent to remove the special qualities attributed to him, the actions which follow an arrival of strangers 
in large numbers tend to reinforce local social cohesion. You can legally perform the right of territorial passage inside a car. The right begins with you making a long line. Estimated wait time before reaching the primary inspection booth can vary significantly. It can take from one hour and a half to more than four hours, depending on the hour of the, and day of the week. Nobody knows exactly how much time will it take, though several radio stations give information on waiting time every 15 minutes. But what the radio says can have nothing in common with real lanes of cars or the non-existent or massive line of pedestrians trying to legally cross the border. If you perform your role in the right of passage inside a car, dogs will sniff it. Passengers are not supposed to touch or play with the animals, whose job is to locate drugs and bombs. Dogs and agents will walk between lanes of cars, and you're supposed to keep talking about usual matters, but try to keep in mind your conversations may be recorded somehow or you may simply be imagining yourself being recorded by them somehow. Talk about what you want them to listen. You should refrain from bringing any fruits, vegetables, live or raw meat in an effort to combat certain diseases or bugs from entering the U.S. food supply. And any weapon, drug, legal or without prescription, Cuban cigars and live animals will, will be confiscated by U.S. customs. Once you get to the inspection booth, you will meet your ritual partner, an American National Immigration Service officer. His first communication will be to show you his hand as a stop sign. He will move slowly as to emphasize he's in charge, in control of his and your body. You should stay, away, stay 10 meters away until he completely finishes inspecting the vehicle and interrogating the passenger ahead of you. When he's finished with, with her, him, or them, you're next. He will move two of his fingers to let you know it's your turn. Now is the time to put your ritual mask, let your jaw down, <laughs> and remove your sunglasses. The metamorphosis usually concludes in a character. Character will not allow any more metamorphosis. Character is clear and is delimited in all its features. It is a way to save itself from the non-stop flux of metamorphosis. Through its rigidity, the mask differentiates itself from all other final states of metamorphosis. In relation to the face ever-changing expressive multiplicity, the mask implies exactly the opposite, a perfect rigidity and constancy. The effect of the mask is mainly outward. It creates a character. Every language which is to you totally alien is an acoustic mask. I'm exactly what you're looking at, says the mask, and everything you are afraid of remains behind. Once your car stops exactly at the point where he sits in his inspection booth, he will look you in the eyes, which must relax. Oh, your eyes, so full of lies. At that moment, you must show your documents and you must not forget to give straight answers, which do not deviate from the very precise question he's making to you. It is crucial you listen carefully to what the officer asks you and do not forget to answer him directly, short and to the point. 
Be prepared to show strong ties to your home country with official documentation only if required. Ties to your home country are the things that bind you to hometown, homeland, or current place of residence, job, family, financial prospects that you own or will inherit. Answer every question truthfully and maintain a positive attitude. Do not forget this ritual is about disclosure, finding out what the truth is before opening the door of the new world. He will unequivocally begin the exchange with this ritual question. What are you bringing? You should always say nothing. Nothing means you are not carrying any fruits, vegetables, drugs, or weapons. A typical dialogue will go like this. What are you bringing from Mexico? Nothing. What are you bringing from Mexico? Nothing. You have to answer yes or no. <laughs> what are you bringing from Mexico? No. Good, go ahead. But sometimes a typical dialogue does not happen. You need to remember you must not at any, mo at any moment lose your temper. At this point, don't get involved. You must bear in mind this is routine procedure. Don't lose your cool. Maintain eye contact, though not aggressive. Don't look into his eyes. Just open yours. He will enter into you. You should be prepared to let him inside your eyes, clothing, life, wallet, or car. It's not personal. It has nothing to do with you. Give straight answers. Don't fuck up. Do not try to enter into his eyes. Open yours wide, but not as if you were trying to eat him. <laughs> Don't swallow too much saliva. Do not speak in Spanish with other passengers while he's addressing you in English. All of you must remain silent unless your ritual partner asks you again, what are you bringing? Do not cross your arms or legs. Officers are trained in body language. At the verbal level, remain in the generic. Just repeat what you already know as a right answer. Say nothing or nada, but be prepared to explain why are you using one language or the other. How come your English is so good, sir? He's trying to know if you, if you have illegally worked in the U.S., but are trying to cross as if you were just one more, just one more tourist today. Living in Tijuana makes it easier for one to speak English. And why is your English so good, sir? Where did you learn it? Do not explain you learned English directly in relation to American bodies. That may get you in trouble. You must not show yourself as someone who usually is around Americans and is familiar with English. If you do so, you may appear as someone who works for them and receives orders and often responds to Americans. Do not, do not open that world in the officer's map. Keep your story clean, no Americans in it. Please follow instructions. I learned it in school and watching TV. The answer was not the right one. You are not following orders. It appears you chose to disregard laws and rules of engagement. You opened the wrong door, mister. You're telling a story. A personal one. The simple question by the officer was, what are you bringing? 
and you were supposed to say nothing. So why the hell are you giving away the story of your childhood? <laughs> it's beside the point. Just offer generic information to work with a plan that is preset is one way of avoiding subjectivity. The fewer decisions made in the course of completing the work, the better. This eliminates the arbitrary, the capricious, and the subjective as much as possible. That is the reason for using this method. Try again. This time you don't mess up. Just answer the question truthfully. And don't forget your ego will just lead you into secondary inspection. Repeat the preset body of text. Don't change your mind midway through the execution of the piece or you will compromise the result. Don't lose sight of the fact that once the idea of this interview is established in your mind and the final form of the verbal exchange between you and the officer is trusted, the process is carried out blindly. There are many side effects that the border crosser cannot imagine. The process is mechanical and should not be tampered with. It should run its course. Do not show any emotions. Do not get caught up, caught up in narrative. Follow the rules. Follow the procedure. What are you bringing? Nothing. What are, where are you going? San Diego. What are you doing there? Shopping. Shopping for what? I want to look for new shoes. I need shoes. You messed up. <laughs> How come your English is so good? I don't know. You don't know? I need your wallet, sir, and your cell phone, too. You're too romantic. You come close to the lyrical, even the confessional. <laughs> you lose sight of concepts. Try again. Remain calm and uncreative. What are you bringing? Nada. Where are you going? San Diego. What are you doing there, señor? The compras. What? The compras. What? Please answer me in English. You do understand English, right? Yes. So why are you answering my questions in Spanish? What are you hiding? Nada, nothing. The officer will look into your eyes, so full of lies. Between your two eye eye, there's a separation. Every eye is a wall. He will look into your documents. He will look into the computer. He will look into your eye eye eye. He will look for all kinds of information on you, and you must remain silent, and your story must remain the same. You must have no story at all, nada, nothing. Borders are, are drawn as rituals of passage to transform you into the stranger, the other. Crossing to the Mexico-U.S. border is specifically a ritual on you becoming the alien, alien even to alien as your border name and requires that you play the character of the one that has remained the same. It involves bullying and a strange attempt to reaffirm national identities and stereotypes in both directions. A performance on power and a language game which pushes the alien to conceal and or disclose the transformation of identity which the border encompasses. Now you understand, right, sir? Are we in the same track? Yes. You can go now. Don't say anything more. Nada, nothing. Follow previous instructions. Calmly open your hand and take your documents back. And when Interstate 5 opens, drive without turning back. Accept the freeway as a fast symbol of the American experience. 
how open it is, how the fresh air invades your whole car and skin, how free you feel, how crossing the border makes you feel alive. That's what this rite of passage is all about. And please smile, keep a positive attitude. This is just the beginning. Proceed accordingly. going to uh, say uh, what's the title of this uh, series of pieces. They began with a, they began with a quote by Olson. <clears throat> Shall we take Henry Adams 1921 AD or 1945 that act? It doesn't much matter so long as we get quite clear that sometime quite recently a door went bang shut and a box of history can be seen as such and put away, say, the box 500 BC, 1950 AD. Simply because I want to be wholly serious and not ignore one overwhelming fact almost always ignored by, by, by my fellows, that almost all serious men are still grounded in the old laws of the box. One. San Diego, 1951. You're all Jack happily jumping out of the Western box, right? Some uncertainties you got going, huh? You're all shaky, baby, skeleton. I know who you are. You're a trembling trickster. Spring break is your spirit. Opening the door, coming home in your eyes. I can see your kid, who must be welcoming this, how delicious it will be, and how handy using spirals as an alibi. You're a bomb, it's excitement and it's anger. You're the American body after the Hiroshima surprise, the birthday party, but you haven't been sleeping well. It's okay to play Joker, just remember, you're not going to fool me, Jack. You've been drinking. I know you're deep inside. You basically want me to believe there's no inside. You want me to say language as games, right? Pitch sign. Say hello, say goodbye. What a great hat, by the way, just like Uncle Sam. Oh, what a crazy kid you are, Jack. Two. Give me those hands, Jack but not in this fast food restaurant. Guess you lost them somehow. Though your face is plump and the business is good. Thank goodness you've stopped being such a loco loco. And where's your body, by the way? Look like you're the West and a father in war with his son. You look younger, happier. You got the moon in your mouth. You got Pac-Man in both eyes. I guess San Diego treats you pretty well. I mean, you lost your body, which was kind of disgusting anyway. <laughs> and don't have to worry anymore about hair and fear. You're only a head on a box, which says, Jack in a box in a very fun way. 
and you're cross-eyed trying to decide which direction to follow because your mom is also part of the U.S. troops now. Guess that changed our breakfast. And the chain went nationwide. And we want you to behave and to grow. And that Pac-Man sure knows how to take care of all the ghosts in the house and can stop consuming, eating, and taking pills and everything. Three, a prologue. Bodies embody embedded wars. You managed to mature, Jack, not wacky Jackie as before, not a trembling trickster anymore, but still you're an expressionist, so naive of you, still a little bit of stupid clown. Though your face is smoothly straight thanks to eye surgery. <laughs> and hamburgers now stands out. And it seems your last name is in the box. And still are having a blast. And having broken apart, laughter remains a means for the releasing of energy bit by bit. Economy of a small flux. Oh, you crazy Kerouac. Now, that's a surprise. And you seem to have been taking it in an awesome way, you have a great smile. You make other people happy. Four. What happened to you? <laughs> That's a nice hat. Thanks to the ship, you look younger and younger. Your eyes have magic. And your hair, well, your hair is on fire. <laughs> but that may be just me, Jack, or the 60s. I shouldn't worry about you. Your eyes are looking away, happily checking out the fullness of life. What a surprising color you have between you and your body, or again, I should say, your box, and your red cheeks, just lovely. I can't find anything bad to say about you. You just play silly. You're part of a hysterical comedy, from SNL to FLARF, which incorporates the nonsense of war language and precedence into bodily reactions. Constituted by denial, male is a kind of pain and anxiety. Keeps eating dead bodies, ambush hamburgers, meat. Could you please put more ketchup lots so I can eat it all up? I want to support the troops and their families. What a great story you have, Jack. It unfolds wonderfully, leaving no stains behind. And the moon? Chits a process. Five. Whoa! You're one with the box now. You have achieved artistic status through minimalism and abstraction. What is the aesthetic? A reduction into essentials. What style is all about? Getting rid of immigrants' presence in the sound of writing. And of course, no emotions. Patopeia engages bodies, and we don't want that too sticky. Please bring Plato back. Pythagoras also knew there are laws, but he didn't brag about it. We want a world of ideas, but without the otherworldly stuff. My inner hippie went to Ikea. And please, I want my hamburger with no personal or lyrical garbage lies. That's why your body has disappeared from sight, Jack. 
but the knave in your head, dear Sandy Ego, roams. Poetry is always singing empire, and beauty is what does not remind us we are at, but keeps the, us feeling whole. Still at, very still, almost no movement, Jack. Distillation, a return to purity, Cartesian clarity and the mathematical, and indif an indifference to emotions during periods of upheaval. The Greeks also play key to avoid acute awareness of being full-blown warriors, and without biography, sail to ethereal language islands. Six. Information, writes Aroldo de Campos, is any, pro is any process of science that exhibits a degree of order. Your head shrank, Jack, 1978, and it seems word took precedence over pictures involving too much psychology, which we don't want. You don't want that, Jack. What you want is paying attention again to, the West, to what the Western box indicates, or at least the TV screen. Exactly where we want you, Jack, back on the top, and your name spelled big. Seven, 2008. Where are you, Jack? <laughs> A simple retro description, Republican info, replace you. Oof, pop. A dismissive cute bomb. A war hole. Hacked in the Brillo box. In and out. Finally, the box appropriated Jack. And though he settled in, the in the box legend found a way out of Jack's headquarters. Insiders tell us information will be released and free to circulate and guard while Jack somersaults inside, and in the space left by the absence of the other, the double will appear. And what we want will reveal its walls. To be continued. I hope we still have some time. Do we have like five minutes or something like that? Okay. This is from a, a notebook I've been using for the last uh, months. This is by Toledo, Francisco Toledo. This is a cheap notebook that I bought in Oaxaca. But I mean, cheap, but I think it's very beautiful. This is a notebook on uh, etopoetics, a day book. And that's a visual poem in Spanish, which can, which can be read as uh, yo, soy, yo soy yo, I am I, but can also be read as yo soy oso, Yo soy SOS. Yo soy, yo soy serpiente. I am bear. I am serpent. I am SOS. What kind of poets have existed? How has poetry transformed men? Work is the missing link. The struggle between different poetics 
is not literary, ends up being literary, but a struggle about what can human become. Texts are guides by unacknowledged legislators, dictators, on what you should consider aesthetical. What sort of self, what sort of self-shaping takes place in what kind of poems? What sort of self, what sort of self-shaping In Cage, Bernstein, Higinian, Rottenberg, Spar, Flarf, Goldsmith. In what sort of readers? Differences between poetics are differences between etopoetics. One, the production of a way of living, being, ethos. Two, the human as artifice of oneself, many selves, autopoiesis. Three, the intervention of human pre-structure to aesthetic, philosophical, pedagogical, or therapeutic language practices. Four, in a more restricted sense, a critical approach to the humanities and the arts, which explore the conscious, unconscious, explicit, or implicit methodologies, exercises, or experiments on man-making, present in the co-production of works of art. Five, a post-aesthetical paradigm of cultural production. Anthropoetics, how to make men. Psychopoetics, how to make soul. Ethopoetics, how to make ethos. Ethnopoetics, how to make culture. Ecopoetics, how to make ecologies. Pathetics, how to make emotions. Therapeutics, how to make perception. Men translates men. Ethos makes men. Men makes ethos. Writing acts upon pre-structure. Six, a branch of anthropoetics which deals with the production and circulation of experimental, non-consensual ethos. Words I haven't seen. Every literary form is a subconscious experiment to create, transform an aspect of man. Essay, producing singular reason. Novel, producing a separate life. Etopoetically, what is poem about? What kind of citizenship, for example, does North American experimental poetics produce? Which human aspects does contemporary poetry enhance, shield? When does conceptualism become retro-rationalism, neo-neo-positivism, emotionally detached, a kind of cool co-control? Is against expression pro-repression? And what about experimental superego? War modifies eyes and arms. Pollock's dripping, dripping really, is how painting, art, and aesthetics 
lyricized dropping missiles, exercise beautified from Plato to collage to not feel war, how Rothko glorified totem light atom bomb. There's always an etopoetics involved in writing, but not necessarily always a writer aware of etopoetics. And that's where war takes charge of performances of bodies. The answer to the question, how has poetry actually contributed to the transformation of men, is what poetry actually is. I will be the last empire. And finally, a postface. Until there is no place that does not see, see you, you must change your life. That's a quote. Men, preface of men. And the work is slow, and language does not have a, the final word. Thank you. Yeah, this, this reading is for all of you, but particularly for Heriberto Yepes. And uh, <clears throat> thinking of the border, I'm also thinking of when we first came here more than 30 years ago, <clears throat> and that the border then was not what the border is now. <clears throat> and there was at least a hope of uh, a breaking down of, uh, of borders and now we're into an age of the rebuilding of, uh, of borders. So I thought I would focus uh, the reading because after all of these many years of writing, I can pull various subdivisions of that into a reading. Uh, I would focus this reading on uh, uh, works related to or coming from the Spanish sources or Mexican and uh, I'll start it with a, uh, a, a short poem that I often use to start readings uh, called The Paradise of Poets uh, and I'll read it in uh, English uh, and then in Heriberto's Spanish translation. A Paradise of Poets. He takes a book down from his shelf and scribbles across a page of text. I am the final one. This means the world will end when he does. In the Inferno, Dante conceives a paradise of poets and calls it limbo. Foolishly, he thinks his place is elsewhere. Now the time has come to write a poem about a paradise of poets. Un paraíso de poetas. Baja un libro de su estante 
y garabatea a través de una página el texto, Yo soy el último. Esto significa que el mundo termina cuando a él le ocurra. En el infierno Dante concibe un paraíso de poetas y lo llama limbo. Ilusamente piensa que su sitio está en otra parte. Ahora ha llegado el tiempo para escribir un poema acerca de un paraíso de poetas. The reading is about uh, translation, which uh, Heriberto uh, touched on. Uh, and in some ways, I've sometimes thought all poetry and much else is, is a form of translation. Social interaction is a form uh, of translation. Uh, and sometimes in doing translation, uh, you know, I thought at least to my own satisfaction, uh, that there was a kind of uh, a linkage emerging uh, with the poem being uh, translated. Uh, and then I would bring it into the performance, into the reading, uh, as if it were my own. Uh, so this is a poem translated a number of years ago uh, from Pablo Neruda. And Neruda gave it an English title, although the poem was in Spanish, uh, walking around. And so the first thing I did was translate the title, Walking Around. It just so happens that I'm tired of being a man. It just so happens that I walk into tailor shops and movies, withered, impenetrable, a flannel swan that steers across a sea of origins and ashes. The odors from a barber shop can start me bawling. I only want a little rest from stones and wool. I only want to see my last of institutes and gardens of merchandise, of eyeglasses and of elevators. It just so happens that I'm tired of my feet and my nails and my hair and my shadow. It just so happens that I'm tired of being a man. And yet, how delightful it would be to threaten some accountant with the head of a lily or murder a nun with a blow on the ear. How beautiful to go through the streets with a green knife and holler out loud till I die of frostbite. I don't want to keep on being a root in the darkness, irresolute, pulled from all sides till a dream leaves me shaking, dragged down through the seeping bowels of the earth, absorbing and thinking, stuffed with food every day. I don't want all that grief on my shoulders. I don't want to keep on as a root in a tomb, alone underground, a wine cellar stocked with the dead, frozen stiff, half gone with the pain. So the day called Monday starts burning like oil when it sees me pull in with my face of a jailhouse and it howls on its way like a wounded wheel and leaves tracks of hot blood in the direction of night and it shoves me into certain dark corners, into certain moist houses, into hospitals where the bones sail through the windows, into certain shoemaker's shops with their odors of vinegar, into streets full of terrible holes. There are birds the color of sulfur and horrible guts that swing from the doors of houses that I hate. There are false teeth forgotten in a coffee pot. 
There are mirrors that ought to be crying from shame and terror. There are umbrellas wherever I look and poisons and belly buttons. I walk around with my calm, with my eyes, with my shoes, with my anger, with my memory failing. I move on, I wander through offices and orthopedic shops and courtyards where clothes are hung from a wire, under drawers, towels, and nightgowns that cry slow tears full of dirt. I had the opportunity to, uh, to, to look back into, into other places uh, and to do translations uh, that sometimes were just transformations from one thing into, into another. Uh, this is a, a fairly long poem uh, called The Flight of Quetzalcoatl, Great Plumed Serpent of Ancient Mexico. Uh, and it's... Uh, uh, it, it, it's a poem, it is a translation, uh, but it's a translation that works from a, a Spanish text, a prose translation uh, by uh, Angel Maria Garibay, a uh, great Aztecologist, uh, and uh, the god Quetzalcoatl grows old and moves out to find resurrection of his life uh, in another place. Then the time came for Quetzalcoatl too, when he felt the darkness twist in him like a river as though it meant to weigh him down, and he thought to go then, to leave the city as he had found it, and to go forgetting there ever was a Tula which was what he later did as people tell it who still speak about the fire, how he first ignited the gold and silver houses, their walls speckled with red shells, and the other Toltec arts, the creations of man's hands and the imagination of his heart, and hid the best of them in secret places deep in the earth and mountains or down gullies, buried them, took the cacao trees and changed them into thorned acacias, and the birds he brought there years before that had the richly colored feathers and whose breasts were like a living fire he sent ahead of him to trace the highway he would follow toward the seacoast. When that was over, he started down the road. A whole day's journey reached the juncture of the tree, so-called fat prominence of bark, sky branches. I sat beneath it, saw my face cracked mirror, an old man, and named it Tree of Old Age. Thus to name it, to raise stones, to wound the bark with stones, to batter it with stones, the stones to cut the bark, to fester in the bark. Tree of Old Age, stone patterns starting from the roots, they reach the highest leaves. The next day, gone with walking, flutes were sounding in his ears, companions' voices. He squatted on a rock to rest. He leaned his hands against the rock. Tula, shining in the distance, which he saw, he saw it and began to cry. He cried, the cold sobs cut his throat. A double thread of tears, a hailstorm beating down his face. The drops burn through the rock. The drops of sorrow fall against the stone and pierce its heart. And where his hands had rested, Shadows lingered on the rock as if his hands had
had pressed soft clay as if the rock were clay, the mark, too, of his buttocks in the rock, embedded there forever, a place named Kamakparko. To Stone Bridge next, water swirling in the riverbed, a spreading turbulence of water where he dug a stone up, made a bridge across, and crossed it. Who kept moving until he reached the Lake of Serpents, the elders waiting for him there to tell him he would have to turn around, he would have to leave their country and go home, who heard them ask where he was bound for, cut off from all a man remembers his city's rights long fallen into disregard, who said it was too late to turn around, his needs still driving him, and when they asked again where he was bound, spoke about a country of red daylight and finding wisdom, who had been called there, whom the sun was calling, who waited then until they told him he could go, could leave his Toltec things and go, and so he left those arts behind, the creations of man's hands and the imagination of his heart, the crafts of gold and silver, of working precious stones, of carpentry and sculpture, and mural painting and book illumination and feather weaving, who delivering that knowledge through his jewel necklace in the lake which vanished in those depths, and from then on that place was called the Lake of Jewels. Another stop along the line, this time the city of the sleepers, and runs into a shaman. Says, you bound for somewhere, honey. Says, a country of red daylight, know it? Expect to land there, probe a little wisdom, maybe. Says, no fooling, try a bit of pulque, brood it just for you. Says, most kind, but awfully sorry, scarcely touch a drop, you know. Says, perhaps you got no choice. Perhaps I might not let you go now you didn't drink. Perhaps I'm forcing you against your will. You might even, might even get you drunk. Come on, honey, drink it up. Drinks it with a straw. So drunk he falls down, fainting on the road and dreams and snores. His snoring echoes very far. And when he wakes, finds silence and an empty town, his face reflected and the hair shaved off. Then calls it City of the Sleepers. There is a peak between Old Smoky and the white woman. Snow is falling and fell upon him in those days and on his companions who were with him, on his dwarfs, his clowns, his gimps. It fell till they were frozen, lost among the dead. The weight oppressed him and he wept for them. He sang, the tears are endless and the long sighs issue from my chest. Further out, the hill of many colors which he sought, portents everywhere, those dark reminders of the road he walked. It ended on the beach. It ended with a hulk of serpents formed into a boat, and when he'd made it, sat in it, and sailed away, a boat that glided on those burning waters, no one knowing when he reached the country of red daylight. It ended on the rim of some great sea, it ended with his face reflected in the mirror of its waves. The beauty of his face returned to him, and he was dressed in garments like the sun. It ended with a bonfire on the beach where he would hurl himself and burn his ashes rising and the cries of birds. It ended with the linnet, with the birds of turquoise color, birds the color of wild sunflowers, red and blue birds. It ended with the birds of yellow feathers in a riot of bright gold, circling till the fire had died out, circling while his heart rose through the sky. 
It ended with his heart transformed into a star. It ended with the morning star with dawn and evening. It ended with the journey to death's kingdom with seven days of darkness, with his body changed to light, a star that burns forever in that sky. I used to read it. I didn't. I didn't think too much of the old age theme. You know, it uh, it comes on you. It comes on you. <laughs> this is one that Heriberto also uh, translated. And it goes into uh, in, into Mexico, uh, and a visit now quite some years ago uh, to uh, the Sierra Mazateca, the Mazatec Mountains in uh, uh, Oaxaca, uh, to the town of Hualfla de Jimenez, uh, and to a meeting with the uh, 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 great Mazatecan uh, shamaness uh, Maria Sabina, uh, a book of whose. Uh, book of whose chants and oral autobiography uh, I was helping to publish. Uh, and it's called The, uh, the Little Saint of Waltla. Uh, and without talking too much more about it, uh, I, hope the, uh, I hope the irony of the, uh, of the ending uh, uh, comes across. Uh, the uh, the ceremony is called a velada, a nighttime ceremony. Uh, and in the autobiography, she says uh, ceremonies uh, can't be bought and sold. But she did offer to sell us a ceremony. <laughs> and I said, well, no, I, I don't feel superior for that because we all sell our poetry for one price or another. The little saint of Huautla lives to be too old. Her voice, painful to her chest, echoes until her belly sags, cries to the tumor under her heart. Oh, you moonchild, you little eye of God, little birds that grow from trees, the drunk climbing the hill beside us, young man, sans teeth, who stumbles to reach her hilltop, sits by the saint and hiccups. Are you a saint? He asks. I am a governor, she tells him. I am a clock, a wheel. The palsy in the judge's fingers flutters my skirt. I am the moon. I welcome my dizziness. I chew the little things and whistle. You will eat your eyes, the clock says. Your shadows will slide down your throats, will choke you. You will come back to my hillside flying. Martyrs will bang Tibetan bells. The mountain god, little king on horseback, will cut you down, the saint says, hides behind her lost teeth. The face of Krishna smiles back at us, her own face in a glow of cigarette smoke as we make small, 
talk, small mirrors shine from the robes of all saints, Mexico in summer still wet with fruit, the garbage of poor lives, poor women know their whippills bright with birds and butterflies, flowers of the orange dance, oh mystic weddings, where in Huautla de Jimenez we were the last to come, the bus still bringing freaks from Mexico to eat the sour mushrooms with earth and goat shit wild on their lips. This is language, tiny letters so brilliant in the sky of La Sierra Mazateca where we arrive to meet our tiger shamans looking for their tracks, their footprints like whirlwinds in far cities torn from the earth, oh clocks, oh eagles, for you the sweat of Christ, Christ's semen becomes a plant, transparent flower glowing in ocean, someone walking with Christ's flower as a staff, a man with money like a saint general whose footprints leave whole path, ju whole jewels in our path. She sings, searches for the night, the drunk Indian, poor boy, smiles to her face and hiccups like a drum, his language dying in him. Are you a movie star, he asks. I am a calendar, she tells him. I am a comet woman, an opossum. I drink warm beer. Freshly I make my bed. My photographs envelop Mexico. I cackle like a turkey. My voice is endless. In museums where shawls are hanging, in bars and fancy homes and ballrooms, in concert with the Grateful Dead. France awaits me. The Italian directors come at night. They suck my mushrooms. The Pope comes to Oaxaca with the others. Butlers are dancing with the brides of God, brides of mountain men, little kings on horseback. Shiva's icon dances on my altar. Clocks are dancing in opossums, wheels, and governors in dreams without a word left to intone, she says, it says for her, the book of language says, translated into broken Spanish, sold to feed the dead, the dying language, hiding from strangers' eyes, the way the mushrooms hide, withhold their language, will not speak, except when the children's voices tell us, casa, dinero, hongos. Hidden from your eyes, too, Maria, poet of these hills, fast-speaking woman, bought and sold to feed the language of the rich, cloaca of all languages, oppressors whom you love, you hilltop woman, you saint woman, you clock woman, you moon woman, you martyr woman, you mirror woman, you tiger woman, you language woman, you flower woman, you money woman, you warm beer woman, you my mother shepherdess, it says, oh mother of the sap, it says, mother of the dew, it says, mother of breasts, it says, mother of the harvest, you rich mother, now standing visible and loud before us. Ha ha ha, so so so, so so so, he he he, see see see, hum hum hum, it says and rises, lonely lost, the spirit that wanders through America, saint children disembodied in city air, crazy in Mexico, a squatter's village to hold the poor fury of dead Mazatecs, the ghost of Juarez speaking English like my own voice at your doorway, shaking this sad rattle, singing without the hope of God or clocks with no word between us, the ladas that cost a thousand pesos. This village, this vigil for your book and mine, for any languages still left to sell.
I have to make a choice. <laughs> because we have to leave some time for questions. Um, I will not read from the Lorca variations. <laughs> or should I? Yeah, I'll read from the Lorca variations. <laughs> Lorca was my first poet in another language when I was in my teens. And uh, some years ago, I had a chance uh, to translate a whole book of, uh, of Lorca's, uh, a series of poems called The Sweets, in the musical sense, The Sweets. And uh, uh, this became part of a, a collected translation of Lorca by many hands. And I had been promised, I thought, that uh, it would also be published as a separate book and would be my, my homage to, uh, to Lorca. Uh, you know, and it wasn't. Uh, so I went back to the poems I had translated into my English and set up a, uh, a system in which I took sweet uh, by sweet uh, Lorca's nouns uh, and uh, uh, rewrote Lorca or wrote new poems. Uh, that had some uh, relation to the uh, to the language of, uh, of Lorca. <clears throat> so I'll read uh, uh, two of them uh, from this book, uh, Un Cruel Nirvana, uh, a cruel Nirvana, uh, that uh, uh, Heriberto uh, translated a number of years ago. But of course, I'll read the uh, the English poems. And Lorca, of course, it was the uh, Great, great poet, uh, and, and one of the one of the martyr poets of, uh, of the twentieth uh, century, uh, killed by um, uh, fascists uh, during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, probably now turns out more because he was gay than because he was otherwise political. Lorca's Spain, a homage. Beginning with olive trees, shadows. Beginning with roosters, crystal. Beginning with castanets and almonds, fishes. This is a homage to Spain. This mist dogs, this silences rubber. This is Saturn. Beginning with yellow, eclipse. Beginning with needles, insomnia. Beginning with baskets, the moon. Who is naked? The imagination, wrote Lorca, is seared. This is a homage to water, beginning and end. And this is the 33rd of the Lorca variations in several parts. Second New York poem, and begins with a quote from Lorca in Spanish. El mascarón, mirad el mascarón, como viene del África a New York. The mask, look at the mask, how it comes from Africa to New York. And the titles are taken from Lorca poems. One, title, 
They are gone, the pepper trees. Half of it was sand, and what remained was mercury and made him tremble, too afraid to rub it in while visioning a hippopotamus who stalked through everlastings and other animals who crossed those endless bridges whom he could bring down with a spear, their beaks grown dormant, their flesh nailed onto trees from which he used to cut his masks, would wear his, his masks around New York, half crazy, wasn't he the bright gazelle mask flashing where he walked? What joy to be among you at this gathering, he thought, to spend this time with you here where the wheat rot, swans rut, camels plod among the peppers in the mask that shows you fear, the mask dissolving into sand like solitude and ashes where the light has died away so recently the cat is playing with a cork and all things come into this other light. The phosphorus ignites over New York where death's a crocodile and sunlight makes the world grow darker where a sword cuts through my throat, my feet, where silence covers everything, where eyes turn white, where time turns inside out, rife with mutilated buds in Africa, inviting us to join their dance of death. Two, title, Canyons of Lime in Prison. A fond farewell at the border. See the dead and how they hunker down, who bring us hurricanes, those naked masks, those shameless tumulters, who tempt us with strange lights. Horses will ride past slender mounts for children, edging their way through niches, squeezing into bank vaults, Wall Street poor and empty, roofs on which manometers break into pieces, and the channels they leave behind excite the iris, yes, and voices cut across New York, and someone wears a mask that looks like North America, and someone else counts up the unemployed whose numbers brought together in a frozen dance, O oh, Lorca, darken the sky. These herds are what we will become. Their frenzy will be ours tomorrow. Oh, my naked heart, we watch the sphinx together, squatting inside the cemetery. She with a bank director's mask, and you, a Chinaman's, your profiles soon identical, except that you still sing your deep song while the sky fills up with down and fireflies grow faint and then invisible. Time hides inside you. Can you feel it? Does it press, press against your mask whose groans are rising in this place? Whose blood is on our blueprints even now? Is there a formula to chart the impetus we feel, a yellow thread to recollect it? When I dance, the naked wife says, it is no less for money. When I give you tail, you fade in me and die. The stillness overtakes you. Sky is split asunder. Lime and mire splatter on the snow. The night makes even gold turn black for us. We wait here at our windows. Watch old columns lit by flames. The impetus returning like a wheel that spins forever in an empty bank vault. See it with your own eyes. Hear it cross this space in silence. Watch her naked body in your mirrors. Feel the sap press upward as if moving among mountains. Guano everywhere to drown in guano, living buried in its canyons. Three, title. I was on the terrace wrestling with the moon. Below us, men in iron masks 
who rob a bank, lie buried in a landscape with a dead fear dripping from them, seeds of light under our windows, where those who pass us groan like swarms of cattle press against store windows that reflect the sky first, then the blood that spurts up when you bite an apple. Sweetly, sweetly, when the dancers mass around us, others dressed like shepherds crying silver tears, cold earthworms standing on street corners in the dawn, near where the young girl rises from the flames, still others whom you couldn't know cut off her hands with broken shells, the tiny drops igniting in the air, smear yolks between her thighs and beat the moon with oars as I do, wrestling on this ancient terrace. Watch me, watch me, whose eyes blaze in the night like stars, who gaze down Broadway like a prairie, I who offer up a mollusk for the dead, slam virulent guitars against my thighs, who wait with Lorca on a fire escape, a pyramid behind us to welcome our forgotten king and pope. Four, title. <coughs> Don't let the Pope dance, someone cries. Don't let the Pope dance, someone cries. El mascaron, mirad el mascaron. It's Lorca crying. Lorca coughing poison over Wall Street, dreaming of a courtyard covered with blue mosses of sodomites and masks, cathedrals where frail millionaires adore a king, where dancers drift around like madmen, scorched by scarlet fevers, stung by nettles, and it's Lorca perched atop his pyramid. It's Lorca smuggling rifles through the forest, Lorca in the mask of anguish, trapped in vines, or Lorca in the stock exchange, the floor collapsing under him. It's Lorca in a mask with emeralds for teeth, a mask to charm the Pope back to New York, to where in jungles to stare out of on terraces a mask with cobras that the builders have forsaken the Pope has jammed over his own not dancing, no, but turning blue cries out with Lorca for the mask it's Lorca's mask we wear together now El Mascaron, he cries to us the mask, the mask and I'll let it go at that uh, That's that's supported by uh, Rilker, uh, and that uh, that is the there's several reasons why I chose that quote. Uh, probably the first one is that uh, you know I've been thinking about uh, this uh, idea of uh, a post uh, post aesthetical paradigm of understanding writing. And uh, the concept of uh, ethopoetics, you know, 
how to build different kinds of uh, ways of being, or how to uh, construct dif how to construct different uh, forms of subjectivity. What the methodologies do exist to construct, uh, for example, uh, uh, what uh, the Greeks called, uh, what, or what we in English can say, uh, fearless speech. How can one uh, uh, reach fearless speech? So that issue of uh, ethopoetics, uh, I think that Rilke is talking precisely without using the word, is talking about that, the poet. Has, that, that, those lines come from a poem in which a sculpture is involved, and not only a sculpture, I mean, but I mean a, the concept of man as a built structure. And so you must change your life. It's like, a, like it's the slogan of any ethopoetical principle. And also that's the last line in, in, in the uh, in the romance, in the last, I think, last volume of uh, poems for the millennium. So that's like an, I think that Rottenberg's work can be understood in, uh, as an experiment, not only in ethnopoetics, but I, I also think that it, that it involves uh, ethopoetics. So using that quote is like, a, I'm like trying to sign that, you know, we need to uh, rethink Rodenberg's work and modern poetry in general. Heriberto, after many years of going to poetry readings, I can safely say that this is the first time I have seen Charles Olson quoted. Uh, mm. And I wanted to ask you, uh, and I'm thrilled, and I wanted to ask you, um, Olson continues to be important to your life, his, his work, and uh, and how do you use his many injunctions to us? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, um, I started to uh, like, try to understand Mexican cultures through the eyes of Americans coming there and imagining Mexicos that sometimes don't exist, uh, as I think that also did, reinvented Mayan culture. And so I, I feel ambivalent toward also, I mean, he's a great poet. I mean, I just love his poetry. I mean, so so great. I mean, so great. So, so he really changed writing in in any language. You know? And at the same time, how I've discovered how in his language, the, mil the mil uh, militaristic view of the world is there. So uh, I started to uh, reflect on the, the uh, sometimes open or unconscious the relationship between uh, imperial, imperialism and poetry, and how sometimes we as, we as writers have the same logics of, of empire. So I was also like in the different pieces I read, I was like making connections between like conceptualism and the way that the, you must cross the border. So um, I'm like, also for me, one point of that uh, lets me, let me see uh, poetry as uh, 
very complex situation where, where counter-cultural uh, alternative uh, projects of men are at the same time uh, uh, hegemonic structures. And I, I don't think that there's a cultural reality or region of reality that is uh, free of that combination. And so I think poetry is when the singing of empire reaches a point where it, it is the most beautiful singing of empire, and at the same time it is like this close to breaking away from, from uh, imperialistic, uh, uh, from an imperialistic perspective. So also for me it's like maybe the, like one of the great poets where we, we, we can see that, that relationship that sometimes we forget. I, I'm surprised that, you know, that uh, American uh, uh, criticism on, on Olson has like not, not addressed that. Thanks a lot. Hay, hay otras preguntas. 